my still fairly new role here as your pastor, how, how privileged I feel to be that, uh, to play that role. Uh, and I also thought I should probably tell John after he came back last week, you can't have him back. Because <laughs> they're mine now. Uh, but, uh, but we are, uh, we're thankful for the week that he was able to spend with everybody and reconnect and, and, uh, uh, just get to see. I, I hope he was able to see a lot of you throughout the week, um, as he worked and, uh, what a blessing to have uh, Rick back on the keyboard uh, this week. And uh, he wasn't banging away on the drums, but uh, Ed and Patty back from Florida. So we're, we are thankful that God gave you safety as you traveled all the way back. And of course, with Patty, we knew every five minutes where you were, so I shouldn't spend so much time on Facebook. Or I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I uh, if I didn't shake your hand, there was uh, it was it was on purpose. For the second time now in one season. Why I something came over me again, and uh, uh, Zach actually came in and told me I looked terrible. So now I feel bad physically and uh, emotionally. Uh, but uh, no, I appreciate uh, I appreciate his prayer uh, over me uh, for that. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna trust God to get us through this morning. Um, Good to see a packed house. You guys all came back for uh, Rick and Ed, or what? Is that okay? <laughs> Just Rick. All right. It is my privilege to be here. Uh, the privilege of, of preaching to you week in and week out is only uh, is only I think trumped by getting a week off. And so, uh, really coming off of last week and, and getting to sit in, in the rows and taking a message. Uh, really, pastors take it, preachers take it for granted that. You know, we're, we're busy working in this all the time that we're, we're, we're taking it in, but really we need to be able to sit silently, quietly and just kind of take it in ourselves. So, uh, it was a real blessing to me. Again, John, if you're watching, you can't have him back. Uh, but, uh, I do appreciate the, the week off. And so we're picking back up on our 2020 vision. That I told you at the beginning of this year was just a really terrible pastoral pun. I, get used to it. I've only been here like seven months and you've already seen a few of them. They're going to continue. And probably only going to get worse as I get older and my, the mind starts to slip away. So uh, get used to it now. But uh, but we are in pursuit this year. We are in pursuit of 2020 vision. God's vision for this church, really. We already have a, a church vision. We already have a, you know, invite, connect, commission. If you don't know what that means, uh, get on our website, check that out, ask some questions about what we're uh, all about here. It's a very biblical, uh, biblically based uh, uh, vision. Uh, but we want to know how best to do that. We want to know how best to navigate the, the future here at Ignite. And so uh, we are in pursuit, praying and trusting God for a 2020 uh, vision this year. Um, it, it dawned on me, rather, it was a God thing, that uh, I was just doing my devotions, and it just dawned on me, I was reading through the churches in Revelation. I thought, this is where we're going. This is where we're going. Now, that's often how he does it for me. It's just, uh, at the, it's always at the last minute. I could ask, why is it always at the last minute? Because you're in charge. I get it. I get it. Uh, but, but... It kind of came at the last moment. I said, this is where we're going, these seven letters to the seven churches uh, in Revelation. We're going to call this first series, and we've been calling it, uh, Hindsight is 2020. Uh, we, we get the privilege of looking back at, at past experiences, and, and oftentimes we think we only learn from our own experiences, right? I have to fall in the hole myself in order to know there's a hole there and I should avoid it. But we have the help of the early church, the book of Acts, the first 30 years of the church, and, and all this other stuff. We can look back and say, hey, I can experience these things. I can experience the pitfalls and the and the joys, the, the highs and the lows, just by looking at the ancient church. 
and say, what, what did the first century church deal with and battle with? Uh, and so we're calling that hindsight is 2020. Uh, looking back, if you will, to move forward. Uh, my goal in teaching, and this, if I've said this, uh, I've probably said it a dozen times already since I've been here. But my goal in teaching, this is why I primarily am a verse-by-verse uh, uh, teacher, is my goal is to pique your interest in the scriptures. I, I want you to get enough on Sunday morning that you, ke- you didn't get enough. Uh, that you're just excited about going home and digging in yourself. And I, I have been honored. The last couple of weeks, people have come up to me and said, uh, you know, I'm really, this is starting to cut, this, these passages are starting to come alive to me. There's no, no better Yelp review a pastor can have than, than you make me excited about getting in my Bible. All right, so that's, uh, the job is done at that point. Uh, because I get you for half an hour on Sundays, maybe an hour, maybe two hours. You don't know. I don't know. But, I get you for a limited amount of time, a limited window of time on Sunday mornings, and then the rest of the week is yours to do with whatever you want. And I hope a lot of you are digging in. And, and, and the next time you read through this passage, one of the things I love about listening to, to uh, verse-by-verse sermon series is that the next time I read my Bible, man, I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating the next thing coming uh, with also the commentary, the extra things that I learned in that passage. That's why you want to listen to good teachers, because you don't want to have the wrong words echoing in your head as you read your scriptures. But... Um, that is our goal, and I hope that you're excited to s- discover more on your own. It's a very difficult book, uh, and I told you at the outset that we're, we're not trying to give you an interpretive grid. We're not looking to look at the book of Revelation and say, how can we interpret all these symbols and make sure you go home knowing what all these things mean? That's not the, that's not the goal. We simply want to look at the church and say, what do they do well? What do they do poorly? What were they commended for? What were they condemned for? And what can we learn from that? going forward. It's like, because these seven churches really, uh, the, the problems they face are universal to the church even today. Uh, and so with that, we, uh, we see a pattern start to emerge. I don't know if you've noticed this on your own, but there's a pattern emerging um, in these seven letters. We get the next slide here, the symmetry in the seven letters. Uh, so you've probably noticed, uh, and if you haven't, uh, here it is, that each letter kind of has the same flow, the same pattern to it. You start out with an address to the recipient. You want to know where it's going. So it's always addressed to the angel of the church at whatever, fill in the blank. And today we're in Pergamum. But it's always filled out to the address to the, to the angel or messenger, being an angelic or uh, the, maybe the pastor of that church, um, addressed to the recipient. And then uh, the identification of the author, the person of Christ. And it's always in some metaphoric thing, some, some symbolic language. Uh, and the interesting thing about this is usually when uh, Jesus identifies himself in these different letters, the symbols he uses have something special to say about that particular church. Something that they need to wrap their minds around because they're not getting it. How, how many of us can meet, can meet the churches there? Like I, Sometimes I just need uh, the two-by-four across the forehead because the still small voice just isn't getting it done. Um, and that's my fault, right? But uh, but it, it can be, it'd be difficult, difficult sometimes. So... He identifies himself as the author and gives some clue as to what he's going to uh, do for that church. And in most cases, there's a commendation. There's something that that church does well. And Jesus is going to say, hey, look, I see you. I know what you've been doing. I know what you're about. I see your struggle. I see you doing this, this, and this very well, and I appreciate that. But it's also followed by usually a condemnation. Because who wouldn't admit that most churches, all churches... Get some stuff messed up. We're a messy bunch of people. We come in here with messes of our own. We, we bring them together. We only get messier, you know. And uh, and so there's always a kind of it's almost always a condemnation. Now, there wasn't one with Smyrna, and there's not going to be one with one other church. But usually a condemnation. What did they do wrong that we want to avoid here at Ignite? 
Um, and then there's a command slash challenge. So he, he ends with a, hey, it's not too late to write the ship. Uh, I've, I've told you what I had to say. Now if you get this right, these rewards will be following. Or you can avoid these threats that I'm issuing. And so you see that number six, the consequences and rewards should they choose to have an ear to hear and listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You remember in Ephesus chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, they had many commendations. They were doing so much well. As I was preaching this message, I thought, how could God possibly be upset with them? You're working hard. You're persevering through all these things. You're not tolerating wickedness. You've tested these prophets and you know them to be false. When they say something false, you recognize it. Why? Because you know what the truth sounds like. That's why it's so important to listen to the right people, to read the right books. They tested the false prophets, finding them out to be false, and they endured hardships. Yet, he said, but I have this against you. Can you imagine hearing that from Jesus? I have this against you. Well, let me correct that immediately, Jesus. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. What that means is that this church at Ephesus was very good at going through the motions. They were very good at knowing what they were supposed to be doing. They were doing those things. They were doing them perhaps legalistic. They were doing them uh, perhaps in a way that they had no passion behind it, no love behind it. And so they lost their love for the people that they were supposed to be the object of their love and their affection. You've forsaken the first uh, love that you had at first. The next church we covered was Smyrna, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And this was a suffering church, a persecuted church. And Jesus starts off the letter, he says, I, I see your afflictions, I see your poverty, but you are rich. Telling us one massive thing. That our poverty, our richness is not dependent upon what we have in this world. Here we have a people that were economically oppressed. What they had was taken from Their houses plundered. They were oppressed by systematically, made to be held down low. Yet the risen Christ would say, yet you are rich. Because we don't mark our wealth by what the world says is, is, the, is the standard of wealth. They put up with slander. How many of you have been, something bad has been said about you, but you're like, well, it was true though. <laughs> so kind of kind of deserved it. Um, but then how many of us have also had had slander spoken about us, things that you know that are not true? Or even worse, they take your true words, they take the, your, your good intentions and they twist them into something perverted, something grotesque, something awful. This is exactly what was happening. All the Christian tenets, all, the, all that made up the Christian faith, they were, they were turning them around in the church at Smyrna and persecuting them for it. But, but Jesus said, look, just, just hold on because it's going to get worse. Who wants to hear that? It's, it's about to get worse. He told that church, be faithful even unto death and I'll give you the victor's crown. And it'll be worth it. And so we have the suffering church in Smyrna. And that brings us to our uh, current passage, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, to Pergamum. I think we have a map up there for you. Uh, Pergamum was about 70 miles north of Smyrna and about 15 miles inland. So what it wasn't, it wasn't Ephesus in that it wasn't uh, the, the economic superpower. E- Ephesus was right along these trade routes, so they had all this opportunity, all these good ports and, and ability to trade and those sorts of things. Very wealthy. What, what Smyrna wasn't, uh, economically they were uh, in uh, aesthetics. They were, it was a beautiful city, absolutely beautiful city. And what Pergamum wasn't in beauty or in economy, it, it was in history and culture. Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey is what we're dealing with. 
And so Pergamon was the capital, a very important center, um, a cultural center. Why was it a cultural center? Because it was a religious center. A number of gods were worshipped there. Uh, too many to list, but just a few that you might recognize. Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, the healing god Asclepius, and of course you had uh, emperor worship introduced by Rome. It was also an administrative center, being the capital of this Roman province. Uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the Roman uh, dealings came through there. But it was also an intellectual center. It was an intellectual center because it, it boasted a library of two hundred thousand manuscripts. If you know anything about manuscripts at all, a manuscript by definition is a handwritten copy of something. Handwritten. This is before the printing press, about fifteen hundred years before the printing press. So they're not they're not printing anything. They're handwriting everything they have. If you had to handwrite the books that you have on your shelves, how many would you have? I would have zero. They'd all be Kindle. I have a lot of Kindle books, but uh, but imagine having to have all your all your volumes are handwritten, and they have 200,000 of them. Uh, they're second only to the library at Alexandria in Egypt. So, uh, massively important area. And can you can you can you relate at all? In America, we have we kind of have a religious, we're a melting pot religiously, intellectually. Harvard, Yale, all these uh, Ivy League schools, right? But we also have the economy. Pergamon was a very important place historically and outmatched any of the cities so far as far as its historical import. Uh, before we go to the text, which will be Romans chapter 2, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, uh, let's go ahead and say a word of prayer. Lord, I do pray that you'd be with us this morning. Lord, that your spirit would be here in power, that... Uh, Something between my lips and their ears, Lord, would be so much more beautiful than what I had prepared. But I can't do that. And so, Lord, we're asking your spirit to be here with us. We know that you indwell us. We're asking, Lord, to turn up the heat on our willingness to accept those areas in which we need to be prompted to do better. Lord, inspired in those areas where we've just been beat down by life. And we need, we need encouragement. We need inspiration. Conviction where it's needed, Lord. And at some points, just information, knowledge of your word. And again, I'm incapable of those things, all those things. And so, Lord, we, we trust your spirit to communicate more beautifully than I can uh, all those things this morning. Help us, Lord, more than anything, to take away a sense from the church of Pergamum that you are the king, you are in charge. And it is worth it to give everything that we have to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so jumping into the text. And I truly don't know how long this is going to be. I normally rehearse these things like from start to finish three or four times. Uh, not, a, not one time did I do that all the way through, so it could, it could be two hours. I told you to bring snacks on Facebook. I did, I did say that. Uh, no, it's not going to be that long. We, we have a Super Bowl to get to, right? That's true, that's true. All right, so Revelation chapter 2. I don't, and I don't have a clue where Romans came from. Who caught that? I said Romans the first time. Awesome. Can we edit that out? I, I do that, since coming to Ignite, I've probably done it like five times. I say Acts, I mean Galatians. This is the first time for Revelation, though. All right, so Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel, the messenger, the angel, angelic being, or possibly the pastor of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. So he starts with this address to the church to know where this letter needs to go. And then with the description, the simplest of the seven descriptions 
of Jesus found in this letter. The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. This is, if you ever question the divinity of Jesus, and let me just say, if you, if you hear somebody else question that, send them my way. Or point them to the, all these passages in the Scripture that, that so clearly lay out uh, Christ's divinity, that he is God himself. But if you need another example, this sharp, two-edged sword, this is a metaphor most often used in the Old Testament for Yahweh himself. Here, use of Jesus. This sharp two-edged sword speaks in the language that they're getting used to hearing and understanding. Warfare, power, authority. And this is what you need to remember about this letter, that Jesus comes and says, yeah, they got those little trinkets, but I'm the one that comes with a, with a two-edged sword coming out of my mouth. Which speaks to his word, but that's all he needs. And so the metaphor is fitting, that he comes in warfare, he comes in power, he comes in authority, over and against all those powers and authorities that think that they're powers and authorities in Pergamum. He continues on, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he starts with this commendation. They had held fast his name. They did not deny his faith. Even though they're in a place called Satan's throne. When he says, I know, he, he, he is with, he's present with us. He, in the beginning of the, these letters, he said he moves around throughout the churches. So God's presence is, is, uh, is with us. He is not, uh, he's not surprised by any of the situations that come up to these churches or surprised by any of the situations that you brought in here with you today. I know, I see you. I am intimately aware of your situation. That bill that's still sitting on the counter. Because there's, there's a bigger number on that bill than there isn't in your bank account. That relationship that's been fractured beyond your repair. That marriage that seems hopeless to ever once again be what it was at first. Just hear this this morning, that Jesus, the one with the two-edged sword, the, the powerful one in authority, sees you. He sees where you're at. He sees your situation. He's not stymied by it. He's not troubled by it. And you should not be troubled by it either. They dwell here in Satan's throne. You might say, well, what, why do they dwell there? Why don't they just move? <laughs> well, the word dwell here is, is, speaks to, grammatically, their permanent dwelling place. And most often when we talk about Christians in this world, in this time, in this place, we, we like to talk about we're just aliens in a land that's not our own, right? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, if you know the old hymns. Yet, the text is adamant that this is their permanent, in this time, in this place, this is their permanent dwelling place, where Satan's throne is. I told you that I would try to help you with the symbols where it was necessary to understand the passage, and I think this is one of those, one of those places. So Satan's throne, uh, a number of ideas have been thrown out as to what the proper interpretation of that is. I'll start with the simplest and, and, and come to what I think is probably the most likely, the most accurate, though I think all of them probably have some bearing on the truth here. Well, first of all, uh, the Pergamum was set on a hill. It was an Acropolis, a, a citadel. Uh, so it, it looked, if you were aware that Zeus had an altar there, that, that they worshipped Zeus at an altar, you might say that's like Zeus's throne. And it, it just topographically, it, the place looks like a throne. Probably just a coincidence, but uh, certainly one that Jesus was aware of. Secondly, they had many gods, and any god, lowercase g, little g, gods, 
is a direct affront to the God, capital G. And any affront to capital G, God ultimately comes from who? Satan. Alright, so we have over and over again different layers of this being kind of met out. But ultimately, it just is probably saying it's a stronghold of Satan. It's a, it's any, any place you get the, the intellectual meeting the, uh, the economic and the, uh, and all these things, uh, superpowers, uh, you have people that are resistant to the idea of God, telling them how they should live. More important than probably anything to remember, and this goes for most of your study of the New Testament, is the idea of emperor worship. Why was it that Christians were so hated? Why were they, why, why was it that Jews were not so hated, but Christians were? Well, because the Jews had made nice with Rome. They were a recognized historic religion, and this new way, they called it, uh, was something out of left field. Uh, furthermore, the, the true Christian could not, would not, refused to call Caesar Lord. If Jesus is Lord, how can Caesar be? He shares no glory. And for that, many people met the end of their life here on earth for refusing to do that. And so emperor worship is a very important thing to keep in mind and probably the best explanation of why this is Satan's throne. It's instructive, though. I want to I camp out just on the idea that they dwelled where it was evil. Uh, too often, and this is, if there's convictions that you're obedient to God to, I don't want to mess with those. You have your convictions. But too often I see Christians running to pack together. As if if we don't pack together, we're going to die. God has called us to go charging into those areas. He's, he's called us to not fear those things. He's called us not to be afraid of those things. But to walk straight into those areas with the, with the light of Jesus being salt of the earth. How can we do that if we're all packed together where it's safe? And, and so maybe you have convictions about public versus private school. Maybe you have convictions about these other things. I, I happily have conversations with my kids that come up in public schools. I want to know what they're talking about so I can talk to them and talk to their friends and talk to their parents. It may not be for everybody, but just it, it felt like something I should, I should say there. That we're called to be in this world. Not of this world, but we are called to be in this world. And how can we be any impact? If we're banded together where it's safe, in our little tight-knit Christian circles, we have to be where people are. And it is possible to remain faithful all the while, as these uh, some in Pergamum did. As he said, you held fast my name. Over and against the temptation to succumb to the paganism all around them. Just, just give Zeus his due. Just give Athena her due. Just give Dionysus his due. Just just tell Caesar he's Lord. That's all you have to do. You don't even have to mean it. Just say it. But they didn't. They held fast to his name. They clung to his identity, his essence, and maintained their identity in him. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That new creature is called to be where people are. They held fast his name. They did not deny his faith. They persevered in face of uh, in the face of great persecution. There was heaping pressure with all the other pantheon of gods all around. There is heaping and mounting pressure from Rome itself to say, "Hey, look, this is the thing here. You just say that Caesar's Lord. We we, we don't. It doesn't need to be fancy. You just need to say it. 
And for that uh, refusal to do so, Antipas probably met his demise. The text says, in the days, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is killed among you where Satan dwells. That word witness is the same word for martyr. The same exact word used there for witness and for martyr, telling me that the two often go hand in hand. I told you last week about a guy named Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, who not long after that book was finished, that book was written, was tied up to a stake and burned alive for his faith. For this exact offense, not calling Caesar Lord. And then I told you about a new guy, a different guy, a Nigerian pastor, because I wanted you to see this isn't just an ancient thing. If you get the Voice of the Martyrs, you get any other publication that talks about these things, you're well aware that persecution is alive and well in most places but here. Or we're comfortable. We choose to shield ourselves from that because I'd rather not ruin my day. But this Nigerian pastor, and this has never happened for me before, I, I shared his story one week about his his steadfast faithfulness. And the next time I took this pulpit, he was dead. This is still happening. People are still demanding that you call Caesar Lord. It might not look exactly the same, but it's quite similar, and it's unmistakable. So there's much to commend Pergamum for, but he says in verse 14 that... Biggest little word in scripture, I think, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now the teaching of the Balaam, teaching of Nicolaitans, most commentators would kind of wash them all together and say they're very similar. We're not sure what the Nicolaitans uh, were all about. Um, But they first got the commendation, now they get the condemnation. You see, a, a minority, a group of them, were beginning to compromise. They were being lured away from the faith once delivered to the saints, and they were they were accepting these other things. They were tempted to to flirt with going back to the place from which they came, the place from which they were saved. These are all, remember, uh, the churches in uh, in Asia, largely Gentiles, not Jewish believers. They're Gentile converts. So what were they converted from? They are converted from paganism. And so the temptation, the allure is to go right back to the thing from which you were saved. And it's so easy. Isn't it so easy to slip right back into the old way? The old way, we justify things, don't we? We're so good at justifying things. Well, the reason was I was tired and, you know, I really wanted that thing that I stole. Uh, we're ter- I mean, in our minds, we, we convince ourselves, but we're, 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 nobody else would buy it. But they're being tempted to return to the paganism from which they came. But they, the teaching of Balaam, this is actually a specific Old Testament story. Uh, if you're not familiar, you can go to Numbers chapters 22 through 25. We don't have time to go there right now. And all God's people said, we don't have time to go there right now. We could. Um, but in Numbers 22 through 25, and then again in chapter 31, you see kind of the end of that story. Uh, but but Balaam was hired. He was a sorcerer. He actually was a true prophet of God. The Spirit of God came upon him. You'll read about that in, chapters, in Numbers chapter 24. Um, 
But the Spirit of God came upon him, but he was a sorcerer. He was, and those guys were mostly for hire. They would do what you wanted, you just pay them enough, and they'll do it, do what you want. So Balak, the king of the Moabites, says, hey, I really, I'm, I'm concerned about these Israelites. They're getting to be too numerous. There's too many of them. They're too powerful. I, I'm really not wanting them to kick our butts like they could kick those other guys' butts. So, uh, what, what do you say, uh, Balaam? Just give them a curse. Just curse them, and we'll get on with this. We'll be fine. Well, Balaam tries three times to follow his marching orders. He tries three times to curse the Israelites. Three times he fails and ends up blessing them instead. Who's in control? God is in control. The, the most wicked of intentions, you know, the, the, the Christian brother or sister, son of God, daughter of God, is invincible until the will of God is complete in their life. If we even given a shred, an iota of belief to God's sovereignty, we have to believe that that is true. That he is capable of keeping us alive in the fire. And oftentimes, that's where he has us. But because Balaam couldn't curse them, he thought, well, I'll get more crafty. And what I'll do is I'll get them to compromise. So he starts sending Moabite women. And what dude doesn't understand this? The pretty little Moabitess comes along and is like, hey, you want me? And it's like, well, sure. And, and they, they slip off into this spiritual and sexual immorality uh, and completely unfaithful to God. And this is exactly the parallel that's happening here with the Nicolaitans and with the te- those that follow the teaching of Balaam. They're saying, I just want to flirt with it. I just want to dabble in a little bit of that. Let's just give me a little bit of that uh, that culture, that that those beliefs, those other gods. Just give me a, a little bit of the, the health and wealth that comes along with following the emperor. Just a little bit. Just let me put my toe in the water. What does the Bible say about serving two masters? You can't. You never meant to. You were meant to give your allegiance completely and totally to Jesus the Christ. Period. So the irony here is that they were seducing the people, former Gentile pagans, back to the thing from which they were saved in the first place. And now comes the challenge, the command in verse 16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and them with the sword of my mouth. And I always thought, when I was reading that, I thought, war against them. Um, isn't it the church you're talking to? Why are you warring against the church? But I had this, re- this realization as I was studying this passage and, and God just kind of speaking to me about this. And God takes very serious the sins of the church and many times he addresses the sins of the church. But he has no patience for those who seduce his bride to unfaithfulness. And so to those people, he will, he will take the war to them, to destroy them. And think about this. It's not, it wasn't hard for me to get here when I thought about my kids. And my kids ever doing anything that disappoints me or discourages me as a parent. And my kids aren't very old yet. But those that maybe have kids old enough to have dabbled in, in drugs and alcohol, things like that. And you're upset with your child, but you're furious with the person that introduced that to them. I remember with a sense of real disdain the first person that introduced pornography to me. But what's your problem? Must have been all 12 years old, something like that. God is upset when his children walk astray, but he is coming down hard on those that lead them. 
Make sure you're not one of them. God takes serious the sins of the church, but he has no patience for those who seduce his bride to unfaithfulness. And that's what it is when we flirt with various things that aren't found in this book. Why am I so dogmatic about this? Why am I so insistent that we study from this book? Because I hear constantly, I hear, well, this little thing I've, I've learned about, these uh, oils over here, these rocks over there, these whatever. Get that away from me. I have zero time for that. If it wasn't revealed in God's word, I don't have time for it. He can speak to me through the Spirit all he wants. But those extra things are not of God. If he wanted us to know about them, he would have given them to us in this book. Period. And so run from those things. Run from those things that that say, just dip your toe in the water. It's fine. You can still love Jesus. Just dip your toe in the water. No, you cannot. Before you know it, you're headlong, diving headfirst into the water. Maybe never to return. But we entertain those people that flirt with things, don't we? We entertain those people that that flirt with the esoteric, with the extra-biblical nonsense. And Jesus gave you life and life more abundant. He came to give you all that stuff, and yet we say, yeah, but Jesus, you're just not enough. I want you, I want eternal life, and I want everything you've promised me and these other things. What an insult. What an affront to the Christ, the King. That we entertain things like that. So I, as your pastor, I promise you, every now and again, I have to remind us, I have to remind me, that it's not okay to tolerate those things. One of the things the church at Ephesus was commended for is not tolerating that. We can do no other here at Ignite. Let me get off my soapbox real quick. You know, you read in Jude, verse 3. It's only one chapter, so that's why I say Jude, verse 3. It talks about the faith once delivered to the saints. Once, once, once delivered to the saints. You know, Jude, what he wanted to talk about, he wanted to talk about their common salvation. He opens up the letter that way. He's like, I want to talk about this, but you know what? There's a lot of wolves creeping in. There's people trying to steal your souls. There's people trying to steal the sheep and beat them up. And and I I have to talk about this other thing over here. Because it's needful for me to address this issue. And week after week, it's hard. It's heavy. It's weighty. And sometimes I feel guilty almost. Like I, I walk away from this pulpit thinking, that was too, that was too much. It was too, it was too hard. It was too. But Jesus wants a pure church. He wants a faithful bride. And you don't get that by me throwing out wafers to you to snack on. And asked me to bring the steak today. So steak and potatoes it is, but we need to understand this. This needs to become a part of our reality. And Jesus and no other. The faith wants to deliver to the saints. So before we finish the text, I want to go into some application, improving our vision. How does this help us in this day and age, in this place, in this time? Now maybe you say, well, yeah, but Pastor Jeff... It's difficult for me to wrap around my mind around emperor worship. I've never even been tempted. And I'd say, nah, neither have I. Never been tempted to, to worship uh, Caesar. 
And so maybe that's not the situation we came here to talk about. Maybe your situation is an allure to success, as the world would define it. You right now, somebody in this room right now has one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. Which is to say, you actually have both feet in the world. Because you can't serve two masters. But somebody needs to know that. Somebody needs to hear that today. You need to choose. Today is the day to choose. I'm so hung up on it. People, New Year's comes around and and I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit smoking as soon as this pack's done. If you mean it, just throw them away now. And that's not picking on smokers. Soda. Eating too much. Sugar. Anything that you say you're gonna, I'm gonna quit after this pack's done. After this fridge pack I just bought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hammer these things down real quick and then I'm gonna quit. Quit right now. Decide today that Jesus is Lord and King of your life. I'm just really hungry because I haven't eaten since yesterday morning. To give you a little insight into the way I'm feeling, but uh, that's all extra credit. You're welcome. So maybe yours is an allure to success. You just have to keep climbing the ladder. You just, no matter what, you can't be. And understand this: it comes to, as a sacrifice to the, the the faithful servant of Jesus. It comes as a sacrifice sometimes to your career. Understand that. That if I wasn't preparing messages every night of the week, to preach on Sundays, I might be better at my job. I might be two ranks ahead of where I am. But the small price to pay for allegiance to the King who gave me eternal life and gave me everything that ever mattered in my life. And so understand that success may be one of the casualties of your commitment to Christ. Nobody's going to look at you and say, man, I want to be like that person. Except the other person that wants to be like Jesus. And then that's a total victory. Maybe it's uh, just wealth. You're just pursuing wealth and just stacking your 401k. You're, uh, you're just always contributing the max amount. You're, you're clicking through your stocks every day. You can't stop. Yeah, I didn't do my Bible reading today, but uh, i got to check the stocks again because I'm so addicted to finding out how much money I have right now. Well, if we had a biblical, if we had a Jesus view of money, we'd say we don't have any. Because we forfeit that to him and say, it's all yours, I'm just borrowing it. But that's easier said than done, isn't it? You work hard for the money that you make and it feels like yours. But the person who's been adopted by the king, it belongs to the king. Maybe it's prestige. Maybe it's position that you covet after. Maybe, and this might strike home for somebody, maybe it's one of the hard teachings of Scripture you just can't seem to get on board with. And there's a constant temptation to walk away from it. I talk to so many people like, oh, you believe that? Like, yeah, I don't really want to, but I do, because the Bible says it. <laughs> like, you'd be a lot more comfortable to believe some stuff about everybody's, everybody's saved in the end. Nope. All roads lead to Rome, and, and everyone's going to be fine. I get asked questions all the time. What do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? And I know if I say the wrong thing, that person might walk. And if it's not politically correct, there's a better chance that they walk. But my commitment is to Scripture. My commitment is to the King of Scripture, not to comfort. You've heard the expression that God comforts the afflicted, but what does he do to the comfortable? He afflicts the comfortable. Don't be comfortable on purpose. Look for ways to not be comfortable. Put yourself out of your comfort zone. Go out and do something. Talk to somebody about Jesus. Do those things that get you out of your comfort zone. We cannot here at Ignite afford to foster a culture of compromise. 
Yeah, maybe it's just this group over here, and I don't really, unless you think that I'm talking about you, or this group over here. I'm always worried that I'm going to point, I'm going to say something, I'm really going to offend somebody, but... Uh, But we can't afford to foster a culture where we are constantly compromising every time something gets difficult. Every time somebody doesn't like what we say. Well, the Christian religion is too exclusive. Well, yeah, it's exclusive. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's pretty exclusive. But he was killed and rose again from the dead to prove it. So my money's on him. In Pergamon, it was paganism and sexual immorality. But what are we guilty of compromising in today? What are we leaving a door or a window open to, knowing that we're just going to come back to that when it's convenient? It starts in our personal lives. It ends up creeping into the corporate worship environment. So if you see that creeping up in your your personal life, you need to kill it. And if you don't kill it, I'm going to come along and help you kill it. Because Jesus has given me a charge to pastor this church. And I'm not going to let anything threaten to make him put out our lampstand. And we don't get there overnight, do we? We don't get there just overnight. We don't wake up one day and we're just like, oh, wow, I'm such a pagan. <laughs> you take You take incremental steps in disobedience, don't you? Your, your toe dipped in the water. Flirting leads to devastating departures from the faith. Not exactly parallel, but I had, uh, my, my family and I had these displeasure, as it were, um, of dealing with a, an adoption agency. Now, I'm, we're thrilled to, to have brought Daniel home, but, um, this adoption agency started in, I think, the 80s, uh, and they had a very Christian message. They had a very Christian vision to help children that needed to be helped that didn't have families, didn't have parents. And, and so they, they, they start this adoption, European Adoption Consultants. They are no longer, so you can look them online. They, they, you won't find them. Um, but over the years, they decided that they found out that it's actually easier if you just hire nationals in country to go find these orphans. And then that led to, well, if they just find kids that aren't really orphans, but the parents don't really care that much, well, make them a part of it. And before long, they're stealing kids. Stealing kids from loving families. Two, two of our friends that we met over there actually were featured on CNN. Um, as having had, had to take their children back to Uganda after being at home for a year. But do you think for a second that that adoption agency ever started out when they, they wrote their charter, they wrote their, their bylaws, do you think they ever thought in the beginning, man, I can't wait till we're bringing in money by stealing kids? No, they got there by incremental steps towards depravity. They got there by incremental steps towards that sin. They got there by incremental steps away from what they should have been doing. And before they knew it, multiple of them were being indicted. The agency shut down, and we almost lost our adoption. We thank God, and we don't understand why he blessed our situation and allowed others to lose their children. But we don't get there overnight. And if you start flirting with that stuff now, before you know it, you're not going to... 
nobody out there can even tell who you belong to. We should be so evident. We should be, it should be so obvious who we belong to that we are the stench of death to those that hate Jesus. We just show up and it's like everyone's like, oh, we don't want to talk to that guy. But the aroma of life to those that are going to find Christ, uh, saving knowledge of Christ. How many times have good God-honoring ministries been brought down by the flirtation with compromise of one of its leaders or staff members? How many megachurch pastors have been found unfaithful to their wives because they were just flirting with their secretary? And it started out as just that, just harmless back and forth. Nothing about that is harmless. It's a gateway. It's an open door that in your most depraved moments you hope you walk through. God forbid you ever fall to that, but God forbid even more that you are ever the influencer of somebody else doing that. Because God's going to come down hard on those that influence his sons and daughters away from his will in their lives. Verse 17 says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. A whole lot more uh, uh, symbols there. Um, we won't try to identify all of them, but uh, as, as he often does, he identifies that uh, this is like a race. We want you, you to try to conquer this. We want you to get rise above this. And you can't do it apart from uh, the Spirit of God in your life, but, uh, but with that supernatural resource you have available to you, yes, rise above it. Conquer this thing, this compromise, this, this temptation to flirt with compromise. And if you do, I'll give you some of the hidden manna. And the best way I can come to understand this is hidden manna is like bread. And Jesus is the bread of life. John chapter 6 goes through great pains to describe himself as the uh, uh, the bread of life. That kind of bread you eat from, you'll never be hungry again. And this white stone is interesting because a white stone in the ancient world was given for a number of reasons. One of them uh, was if you were acquitted of a crime. I thought, how fitting would that be? When Jesus saved us, he acquitted us of all wrongdoing because he paid for every bit of it. So he gives us a white stone. And then somebody else said, well, actually, this is probably the, the, uh, the victor in, in athletic games gets this stone. And it becomes their, their token or their, their ticket into a, a feast. And so other commentators have said this is probably actually more likely uh, a, a symbol for entrance into the Messianic feast. Uh, because what greater feast could you be partake in than the Messianic feast? I'll give you a new name. So often, after an encounter with God, we see that happen. Abram became Abraham. Jacob became Israel, and so on. It's also possible that hidden name is the name of Jesus. A hidden to all but those who know him. And once you've received that stone, you now know him. You've eaten of the bread of life. You've given, given entrance into the Messianic feast. You are now a child of his. Whatever the precise meaning, this much is true. Compromise won't get you there. Dipping your toe in the water won't get you there. Flirting with other things, extra-biblical, esoteric things. And we don't so often think about it as witchcraft or, or anything like that, but, but so many people dabble in things that are akin to that. Compromise won't get you there. His promises are worth more, by the way, than the thing tempting you to compromise in the first place. 
I promise you that whatever you give up for Jesus in this life will be worth it. You might not see it in this life. You might not see all the victories in this life. But this life wasn't meant to be the place where we find all the victories. This was the, the, the place where we were faithful to the king to build his kingdom. I'll offer just this parting word as I invite the uh, worship team to come back up. You hear me say all the time, uh, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, especially to uh, churches that are choosing to die because they are unwilling to change. I, I love the passage where Paul says, I became all things to all people so that by all means I might win some. I, I love that, but the temptation for some of us is that we, we compromise too much. We, we don't, we're not becoming all things, we are giving up some things. And we're giving up some of our, uh, our doctrines or our beliefs or convictions in, in order to be more palatable to the person across the street. Trust me, you can't make Jesus look better than he looks. So don't mess with that. Don't try to add things to it to make him more palatable than he is right now. He will, to some people, be the aroma of death. And to others, he will be the aroma of life. You just be faithful and allow God to do what he does in their life. One commentator said this, the uh, Christians are supposed to be different. It's one of the marks of who we are in Jesus. And one said this, those who are not prepared to be different need not start on the Christian way at all. If you're not prepared to be different, look different, smell different, well, I don't know about the smell part, but uh, <laughs> we, we need to, we are his peculiar people. And that's all right if the whole world thinks that we're peculiar. Because the child of the king doesn't need to worry about that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Lord, might we abandon everything else, be willing to, for your truth. Help us, Lord, when we start compromising, we start dipping our toe in the water, the culture around us, Lord, that you would... You would uh, Remind us sharply. Maybe send somebody else to remind us, somebody that loves us enough to say something to us. Hey, you're playing with fire. And might we be that person for someone else that is willing to say unpopular things because we know that it's ultimately the best thing for them. Help us, Lord, to remain a pure church for you. That this Ministry might continue on for years to come. Bless us as we go from here, Lord, and uh, may you receive all the honor, all the glory for all that we've said and done here today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.